This is Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave on November 27th at Marin Sangha. The topic of the talk is Buddhism and activism in these very difficult times following the U.S. presidential election. Some Dharma practitioners have asked me questions about how to be an activist while still following the Buddhist precepts. To me, these are certainly not mutually exclusive. In fact, they complement each other quite well. May this inspire you to fearlessly stand up and alleviate the arising of greed, hatred, and delusion, no matter where it manifests, within us or in our world around us. May we tirelessly work for and defend the health and well-being of our planet and all beings who reside upon it. A lot has happened since I saw you last, hasn't it? It's been quite the three weeks. And there's been a lot of questions coming up about, um, I'm a Buddhist and, you know, should I go protest? Which, frankly, I find strange. But I did realize that uh, Buddhism and activism is not something that Buddhist teachers talk about a lot. So guess what? I'm going to be talking about Buddhism and activism tonight. Especially since, um, as David Axelrod said, I think a few days ago, uh, he called the election a primal scream on the part of a lot of voters who are disenchanted with the status quo. And you know, the Buddha was very disenchanted with the status quo. So uh, I think Buddhism and activism go together. Now, as many of you know, Buddhism has a very sobering view about life and about experience. It's unsentimental. It has a very realistic view of experience. Buddhism blatantly acknowledges that human life is filled with experiences we don't like and loss of what we cherish, and that we create mental suffering when that happens. And I imagine some of you had that feeling the evening of November 8th, and maybe in the couple of weeks since then, some not liking and a sense of loss. One of my favorite teachers is um, Zoltar Damyan Kensei Rinpoche. He is a um, very esteemed, but quite modern, actually, Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He wrote one of my favorite books. It's called What Makes You Not a Buddhist. It's, you know, it's written specifically for Western practitioners. So yeah, you think you're a Buddhist, guess what? The way you're living your life, uh-uh. And uh, he likes to tell it the way it is. So I thought that I would just begin by reading a little bit um, of his view, which this was written in 2008, and you will be amazed at how pertinent it is. He says, all phenomena are the product of myriad components, and therefore they are variable. Nearly all of these myriad components are beyond our control, and for that reason, they defy our expectations. The least promising presidential candidate might win the election and then lead the country to contentment and prosperity. 
the candidate you campaign for might win and then lead the country to economic and social ruin, making your life miserable. You may think liberal left-wing politics are enlightened politics, but they may actually be the cause of fascism and skinheads by being complacent or even promoting tolerance of the intolerant, or by protecting the individual rights of those whose sole purpose it is to destroy other people's individual rights. Yeah, who went? I know. Intense, right? And that's the kind of that we're going to go for tonight. So that's one view, impermanence. The inability for us to predict pretty much anything and our basic incapacity to have control over most things. Buddhism is very clear about this. But Buddhism has another view. <laughs> this may be something some of you have heard your teachers say before. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to fix. Ever heard that before? I think a lot of people have been feeling like there's a lot to do and a lot to fix in the last few weeks, and many of them are Buddhists. And so we're kind of going to look at these two uh, views and see if we can bring them together tonight in some way. Right view is a necessary condition for right action. And in order to be an activist, you really have to be considering, okay, what is the right action here? How can I make a difference with what I choose to do? And in order for us to look at right view and right action, we have to go right for the kleshas, which are the mental states that cloud the mind and manifest in a whole range of unwholesome actions. Uh, but according to Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, any kleshas that might arise in your thoughts, in your emotions, or in your actions has its root in one of three what I call mahakleshas, the great kleshas, which are ignorance, greed, and hatred, the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, depending on which school of Buddhism you are actually following. So in order to effectively mind the arising of afflictive mind states, we have to have right view at the forefront of our awareness. What is right view? Well, in Buddhism, right view is knowing impermanence, which Sangsar Kensi Rinpoche pretty much spoke. Knowing not self, and knowing the causes of human suffering. Embracing life with right view involves three things. Purposeful coping, minding our reactivity to difficult conditions, and wisely engaging with conflict by recognizing that actually conflict has the potential to incite possibility. This is not a Pollyannic view. Disagreements give rise to new possibilities. So purposeful coping, minding reactivity, and wise engagement require sila. Sila is both virtue as an animating principle and ethical conduct as real life action. 
So Shiva is virtuous conduct. This is a huge part of the Buddhist teachings, how to engage in virtuous conduct. The Abhidharma actually equates Shiva with right speech and right action, two things we also need in order to engage in wise and purposeful activism. And the commentaries on the Pali texts equate Shiva with harmony and coordination. So you have right speech, you have right action, and you have a sense of ethical conduct being able to cultivate harmony and some kind of cooperation or coordination. So virtuous conduct is not contrary to making change happen. Therefore, this is my first argument for why being a Buddhist is not contrary to being an activist. Now the Buddha had a lot to say about virtue. It's all over the suttas. Um, this is just one of the many instances in which he says the following. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya. He said, a practitioner is virtuous when she dwells restrained, is perfect in conduct, and seeing fear in the slightest fault, she trains by undertaking the training precepts. Now that's a pretty tall order, don't you think? <laughs> I don't know about you, but the last time, I can't even remember the last time I was perfect. I don't think I will ever be perfect. Um, and uh, there have been many times in my life when I've not been restrained either. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that I try very hard in my life to cultivate restraint and a sense of not perfection necessarily, but conduct that I can be proud of. Let's put it that way. And I will admit that when I do go astray and I may think something or say something or do something, um, that really isn't my best effort or my best conduct, I do actually fear, feel some agitation. I do. It's not quite fear, but I do feel some agitation. And actually that agitation incites me to do it better the next time, do it differently the next time. Bind my reactivity, <laughs> purposefully cope, and wisely engage. The training that the Buddha is speaking of is nonviolence, wise speech, non-intoxication, and respectful engagement. This is the highest training, I think. And it's so important if we're going to be activists. Therefore, the question becomes, how do we stand up and name injustice and wrongdoing while adhering to the principles of wisdom, compassion, and ethical conduct? Well, the Dhammapada prescribes three steps for this. It says, to abstain from all evil, to cultivate the good, and to purify the mind. This is the teachings of the Buddhas. And that verse takes us right back to minding the kleshas, because we have to mind the kleshas in order to abstain from evil, to cultivate the good, and to purify the mind. In fact, these three actions actually help us to avert the arising of the unwholesome mind states. Now the Buddha and all successive Buddhist teachers pointed to unconscious habitual tendencies in the mind as the source of the kleshas. 
especially the mahakleshas, ignorance, greed, and hatred. In fact, the endemic nature of our most basic primary perceptual delusion, which is the innate reification of self and its perceived separation from the world, I'm in here, everything else is out there, right? That's our primary delusion. And it's what causes a human mind to mistake the nature of reality and then get lost in unwholesome mind states of greed and hatred. The suttas are very clear, all greed and hatred arises from delusion, specifically this innate delusion in the mind, the delusion of a solid, separate, enduring self. Today I was listening to one of my favorite programs, Living on Earth. I don't know if any of you ever listened to it. And um, it was, I missed the show last week because I was presenting at a conference and um, there was an interview with some of the community members at Standing Rock. And one of the elders said, well, basically what we're doing here is we're just here praying all day. And it's true. From the time they wake up until the time they go to sleep, there's continual prayer happening in the Native American um, settlements that are at Standing Rock. These water protectors, they are practicing a beautiful form of activism that I think anybody who's a Buddhist can sign on to. Just making your entire day about being clear that the earth is important, and but also clear that sacredness is equally important, and doing the action from the container of sacred prayer. It's very beautiful. And I assume there aren't a lot of unwholesome mental habits coming up when they are praying all day long. So as Buddhists, we should be supremely interested in cessating our unwholesome habits of mind, body, and speech. The Buddha actually instructed practitioners to awaken zeal for the non-arising of unwholesome mind states. And this zeal inspires effort, energy, and exerts the mind to strive for the increase and fulfillment of arisen wholesome states. The Buddha further taught that the more we cultivate the non-arising of unwholesome mind states, the sooner we actually develop habitual wholesome bodily actions and wholesome verbal actions. And we, of course, in the Buddha's words, affect the purification of livelihood. That's such a powerful expression, the purification of livelihood. He's essentially saying, when we cultivate the non-arising of unwholesome mind states, our body, speech, and mind become habituated to a way of being in the world that walks lightly, but that is firm and clear and can name injustice. This is how we can change the world from the inside out. And as Buddhist practitioners, it is our responsibility to be working on the inside while we work on the outside. Forgive me for using such dualistic terms, but in this case, I think you get my drift. 
So in times like these, practitioners must guard against anger and hatred fueling our desire for change. One of the suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya says the following. This is the Buddha and his um, advice. It is advice, basically, about how you should meet an angry response in the world. And he says, one who repays an angry man with anger thereby makes things worse for himself. Not repaying an angry man with anger, one wins the battle hard to win. He practices for the welfare of both. When knowing the other is angry, he mindfully maintains his peace. When he achieves the cure of both, the people who consider him a fool are unskilled in the Dharma. So for a practitioner, an angry response to anger is engaging in punishment and violence because it entails conflict and strife. That's not what we want to be cultivating in the world, right? We're supposed to be cultivating the alleviation of suffering. Equanimity as a response to anger cultivates non-punishment and non-violence because it entails freedom from conflict, contention, and strife. So finding a way to be equanimous in the midst of chaos and in the midst of anger and in the midst of hatred is a very powerful act, not only of defiance, but it actually is defiance that heals. What better thing would you not want to be able to show up in the world with. Firmness, defiance, that is healing, not only for yourself, but for the other people around you. I'm going to return to my dear teacher, Zonsar Jamyon Kenzi Rinpoche, because I love what he's written about nonviolence. Again, he just cuts right to the quick in a way very few others do. So he says, the Buddhist practice of nonviolence is not merely submissiveness with a smile or meek thoughtfulness. The fundamental cause of violence is when one is fixated on an extreme idea, such as justice or morality. This fixation usually stems from a habit of buying into dualistic views, such as bad and good, ugly and beautiful, moral and immoral. One's inflexible self-righteousness takes up all the space that would allow empathy for others. Sanity is lost. Understanding that all these views or values are compounded and impermanent, as is the person who holds them, violence is averted. When you have no ego, no clinging to the self, there is no a reason to be violent. When one understands that one's enemies are held under a powerful influence of their own ignorance and aggression, that they are trapped by their habits, it is easier to forgive them for their irritating behavior and actions. 
So how many of you have been practicing this wise view, this right view, in the last three weeks? I imagine some of you have been, actually. Yes? Yeah, um, we've had a, uh, a precepts class that Art had taught us, and um, some of us got together just to kind of keep it going. And one thing that came out was how not only unproductive, but badly productive or violently productive, harsh speech was. And that we all kind of agreed that that was something that we did not want to continue with. Yes. So sometimes Buddhists mistake truth speech for harsh speech. And that is a mistake. Because the Buddha was very clear about what wise speech is. He said, it should be kind, it should be truthful, it should be for the benefit of all who are being spoken to, and the last thing is it should be timely. There is nothing in there about how speaking the truth is harsh speech. Zansar Kensi Rinpoche is inviting us into, is he's inviting the practitioner, the Buddhist practitioner, into a deeper in, sort of inquiry into truth. What actually is truth? So I agree with you. The harshness of speech, the anger, the hatred is not necessary in order to speak the truth. So choosing the path of non-anger is how we enact right view. This wise engagement is more possible when we can maintain presence during the interactions we have that would normally lead us to have a lot of mental and emotional reactivity. So embodied presence is a necessary condition for the kinds of virtuous conduct that generate collective harmony and healing. If we are lost in our reactivity, there is no way we can remain present. As a matter of fact, on the way up here, I was listening. For those of you who want to hear it, it's amazing. I was listening to the New Yorker radio show on KQED, and um, David Remnick was, did a, sort of an evening interview with... Bruce Springsteen, and there was a section of question and answers at the end, and somebody asked Bruce, so what would you say is the quality that you feel like you've most had to bring to your work and your performances? And you know what he said? Over everything, I have to be present. If I'm not present, the music isn't good. So embodied presence is very critical, especially right now. This is so relevant as the ugly underbelly of America has suddenly been exposed. You know, the day after the election, of course I had to see patients. But I had to go out and sort of in the early afternoon to run an errand. And 
I was just surrounded by shocked individuals walking around Silicon Valley like zombies in a world they did not know. Literally, everybody was in freeze physiology. I could not believe it. This is a place where usually people are going so fast and they're not looking. And it was, it was just shockingly different than what we normally see in the valley. You know, the ideal of American equality, justice, and care for all had just vanished, along with the respectful, informed, rational dialogue that I guess some of us thought we were capable of having. And yet no one wanted to look at the effect of our collective refusal to take seriously long, festering hatreds and fears arising from dissatisfaction with capitalism's uber <coughs> disparities. And these inequities are a mainstay of Silicon Valley. We are the poster child for uber economic disparity. Not Facebook nor Google were ready to take responsibility that morning for the fake news they willingly dispensed every day during the election. I mean, why care if corporate greed undermines a fair election process? After all, they tout that they have goodness and caring by offering their employees mindfulness classes and their big support of Wisdom 2.0. And you know, this is the dark underbelly of corporate mindfulness. Thankfully, a few days later, they started to actually look at it and say that they were going to cut down on it. But shock and denial, that's what was going on the day after the election in Silicon Valley. Neither of these things are particularly aligned with right view. In his 2015 book, A New Buddhist Path, Enlightenment, Evolution, and Ethics in the Modern World, Buddhist scholar David Loy comments very specifically on the devolution of America's republic and the democratic ideal. He said, unless social reconstruction is accompanied by personal reconstruction, democracy merely empowers the ego self. Insofar as I am still motivated by greed, ill will, and delusion, my freedom is likely to make things worse. So long as the illusion of a discrete self separate from others prevails, democracy simply provides different types of opportunities for individuals to take advantage of other individuals. This is Buddhist activism. This is speaking the truth, even about Buddhism itself. And this truth-telling, of course, returns us to right view. And this seemingly problematic Buddhist edict, nothing to do, nowhere to go, and nothing to fix. How do we square that enlightened view with the Buddhist instruction to awaken zeal and strive for the non-arising of unwholesome mind states? One is very effortful, yeah? The other one actually has some effort in it, but it's a different kind of effort. Well, you know, the interesting thing is the Buddha actually answers this question in the suttas. It's amazing. And I found this in the Majjhima Nikaya. So the Buddha 
in his inimitable way, asks the question and answers it himself. <laughs> so he asks the question, where do wholesome habits originate? And then he answers the question. Wholesome habits should be said to originate from mind. What mind? Though mind is multiple, varied, and of different aspects, there is mind unaffected by greed, hatred, and delusion. Wholesome habits originate from this mind. And then he continues. He asks another question. Where do wholesome habits cease without remainder? And his answer was, when one is virtuous but does not identify or own virtue and understands that virtue is the deliverance of mind and the deliverance by wisdom, that is where these wholesome habits cease without remainder. So the Buddha is essentially saying, wholesome habits are phenomena which arise, exist, and pass away. And then he's answering his question, arise from where? And he's saying, wholesome habits arise from mind that is beyond or unaffected by greed, hatred, and delusion. And then, where do the wholesome habits pass away into? And he is saying that they pass away, they are sort of self-liberated when one does not claim virtue as an ego identification. That the virtuous conduct can arise, but it's not clung to as, I'm such a virtuous person, this is who I am. <laughs> then it gets stuck. It's what we call affectively sticky. If it arises and we express it and yet we don't claim it as something that we own, it doesn't become an ego ident identification, then that wholesome thought, speech, action occurs and then it just falls away and something else can come. And where does it go? It returns to mind, that is unaffected by greed, hatred, and delusion. So that deliverance is the mind's innate luminosity. This is mind beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. It's, in the Buddha's words, unconditioned, deathless, empty knowing. It is our innate capacity to know. Luminous awareness is unconditioned by the arising of the kleshas, and therefore it is beyond reactivity. It knows the true nature of all phenomena. And that true nature is all phenomena impermanently and interdependently arises, exists, and passes away. The Mahamudra teacher, Tiloka, once said to his student, Naropa, it is not the appearance that binds you. It is attachment to the appearance that binds you. Our responsibility as Buddhists is to clearly comprehend impermanence, not self, and the true causes of suffering and non-suffering. What has already arisen is unfixable and unchangeable. Wrong view, wrong effort is fighting a moment that has already passed. 
That is suffering. Our job is to work tirelessly in each successive moment to cessate future arising of greed, hatred, and delusion from within ourselves and from the world that we live in. The Buddha said, when one is devoted to wakefulness, one is possessed of mindfulness and full awareness. Acting in full awareness when going forward and returning, acting in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. As a Buddhist teacher who is deeply worried about the future of our nation and our planet, I say, acting from embodied awareness when one is calling out injustice, when one is protesting hateful, disrespectful conduct, speech, beliefs, and policies, acting from embodied awareness when one speaks the truth of climate disruption and refuses to be silent in the presence of those who ignorantly dispute climate change for their own greed. These are acts of great compassion and wisdom. And how we engage in these acts determines whether our conduct is virtuous or non-virtuous. Buddhism doesn't say, don't go speak your truth. It says, be virtuous. Do not create suffering when you do this. So devoted to cultivating wakeful presence and acting from principles of ethical conduct, we can be the agents of transforming a world deeply in need of change, the kind of change that heals divisiveness and awakens collective harmonious activity for the benefit of all beings. That means when we listen deeply and when we consider even more deeply the path of fearlessly naming the mahakleshas, greed, hatred, and delusion, when they are spoken or acted upon by ourselves or by others, that we are willing to honestly look at how our own entitlements and denials, which we know contribute to collective suffering, that we are willing to look at them with great honesty, with a clear, clear mind, and to alleviate them if they will alleviate suffering in this world. That is how Buddhism and activism go together. Purifying the mind means right livelihood as the Buddha said earlier. The coming difficult times will require us to renounce complacency, convention, denial, and cowardice. By purifying the mind and enacting the good, wakeful presence, selflessness, determination, and non-attachment is what we Buddhists can uniquely bring to the disappointments and frustrations that go hand in hand with sustained social activism. And we probably are going to be you know, involved in a lot of sustained social activism over these years. So I'm encouraging us all 
to be lights of non-suffering in a world of dark, intense suffering. We've seen the underbelly. We know it's here. You can't deny it anymore. And though non-practitioners may think we are foolish, as the Buddha said, we will know without a doubt that we are Buddhist activists and how we come to activism may look foolish. On the other hand, I have a sense that it will have long-lasting ramifications. I think our Native American brothers and sisters are a very good role model for us right now in Standing Rock. So I would be very happy to engage in dialogue about this. If anybody has anything to say, I see somebody back there. I have a question. Of course. If virtuous action comes from a mind that's free of hatred, greed, and delusion, it's very hard to have virtuous action because it's very hard to clear the mind of hatred, greed, and delusion. Not that we can't practice continually, to. But when a moment comes when we have to stand up and take a stand and have our voice heard, as it will tomorrow in a meeting I'm going to, to stop slaughterhouses from being allowed in Warren County, I can do my best, I can try my hardest, but I know that there's a part of me that is attached to the outcome. There's a little bit of greed, there's a little bit of delusion because I see the other side is bringing their arguments for why they should be allowed this thing to happen in life. Anyway, it's very hard to feel from what you said. I feel kind of discouraged that virtuous action is a really high bar to me. If the mind is supposed to be clear of hatred, greed, and delusion while taking the action. So I think you're being a little too literal. <laughs> I hope so. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow when you go to your meeting, it seems to me as though there wasn't anything you said that was either contrary to virtuous action nor contrary to um, actually effective action. I think where you're getting tripped up here is that you still think that your effort wasn't worthy if you don't get your desired outcome. And I would really ask you to inquire about that one. Because, frankly, if you get up at that meeting tomorrow and you say what you have to say with clarity and wisdom and compassion, you may not know the ramifications of your speech. It might end up that the slaughterhouses don't get built. I don't know. Or it might end up that they don't. You don't have any idea, one way or the other, who's in that audience, what they will hear, what, what you say may in fact have an effect on them in other areas of their life. We are small human minds. We cannot know the huge ramifications of what we do. So you could go tomorrow with a very limited, small view. Uh, I have to get up and say this, and it has to have this effect, and if it doesn't, I'm going to be disappointed and upset, and that's the end of it. But I invite you 
do not do that. That is clinging to a notion of self that is deluded. I think you are much more than that. I think that what you do, in fact, there's every possibility that you may have effects beyond which you can never know. The feeling of helplessness and collapse that many people have felt over the last, um, you know, three weeks. It's a shutting down of two things. The infinite numbers of possibilities that can arise from wise action, but also I kind of have an attitude of I really have no idea where this is all going to go. I just don't know. I think I have a sense of where I don't want it to go. I think I have a sense of where I wish it would go. But frankly, I, I could. it just seemed unwise for me to get so completely lost in all of my mental scenarios about what this was and to just try to open up to the enormity of I have no idea where this is going to go. It's such a wild card. Sometimes in the global picture of things, saying the truth um, can cause a lot of suffering for a lot of people. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King, when they were speaking their truth, it wasn't universally accepted as, oh, thank you for saving us from all of this. It, it created a lot of reaction. But they didn't cause that suffering. No, but, but it happened. No. You said speaking the truth caused a lot of suffering for people. No. When they spoke, People had their own responses and their own reactions inside of their own minds. And some of that was suffering. And some of it was liberation. And I don't think either of those individuals, Mahatma Gandhi nor Martin Luther King, practiced anything other than right view and wise action. I think they both were very big proponents of nonviolence. I respect him greatly. But it didn't create suffering. That's what I'm trying to say to you. That is a distortion, and you, when you say what they said created suffering, that is a misunderstanding. They said what they said, and individuals had their responses. They would have created suffering if they had said it in a way that was violent and harmful. Then we could say they created suffering. It's a subtle point. And no, no, this is a very powerful point. This yeah. is actually exactly what I am teaching tonight. I am teaching. <laughs> and so you, you, you hit it on the nail, and it's awesome that you did this. And the second thing I got out of this yes. was in response to what was said. It's like Philip has often said, until you're our aunt, there's no such thing as pure... Pure, um, the word um, pure intention is usually a mixture of, oh, yes, I have this intention, but I have my own axe to grind in some some way or another, and you just 
have to deal with, if one can be aware of one's axe to grind, even while saying it, then you might. That's the best we can do. So that is the teaching of the Buddha on cultivating um, wholesome action. Because you can have unwholesome emotions and thoughts arise, but then you can notice them and you don't act on them. Yeah? Yeah. This comes up for me so often in dark conversations with friends. How pure is pure? Our job is not to go for purity. The phrase is purifying mind. That doesn't mean we're trying to be pure. It means we are trying to be able to purify what arises in mind. That's mindfulness, awareness, and intention, and the whole Eightfold Path right in a nutshell. Hold the idea of being pure and an arhat and all that. Hold that lightly. Have your intention there, but hold the outcome lightly. Okay? So I really appreciate your kind attention tonight, and uh, I hope that this was useful to you in some way.